Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Thea is on the final leg of her interminable holiday. I understand there have been confirmed sightings in the country this week, though. So I'm joined again by TLS arts editor, token northerner and example of rock royalty, Lucy Dallas. Hi, Lucy. Hello. Is it true, Lucy, that you almost collaborated with the late Kurt Cobain on an ABBA cover? It was in the ether. There we go. Isn't that, isn't that, I find that, that's a fascinating story we'll pursue another time. Each week we'll be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS on big ideas or authors. Coming up on the show today, we'll be talking to former TLS editor Ferdinand Mount for two very good reasons. Firstly, this week we have a review of his latest collection of essays, English Voices, declared by our reviewer to be sublimely assured, satisfyingly thick with particulars, and an example of his capacious knowledge and intelligence. Secondly, Next week, we will be publishing Mount's essay on Marx, to whom he proves to be a stern and an exacting judge. Also this week, we have a history special in the TLS. From the critical edition of Mein Kampf to the birth of genocide, from the reported murder of James I to the definition of realpolitik. Tying this all together for us will be the man who commissioned them all, the history editor of the TLS, David Horsepool. Finally, TLS commissioning editor Mika Ross-Southall has been watching a documentary about Nick Cave and listening to his new album, both of which are set against the tragic backdrop of the death of his teenage son. She will be here in the studio to discuss them both. So, what are the defining characteristics behind Englishness? This question, also regularly set on the related subject of Britishness, is often a political one, not least because it's so beloved of politicians. Tapping into a national identity is in many ways the goal of the successful political figure. Englishness can, in such a forum, be glibly identified positively by an aspirational set of often fantasised virtues, fairness, humour, tolerance, or identified negatively as something noticeable by what it is not, foreignness, Europeanness, and so on. Tessa Hadley has reviewed Ferdinand Mount's collections of essays entitled English Voices, returning the verdict that it is a wonderful melange of writing on the subject of Englishness, what she calls a cornucopia of wonderful gossipy details, informed analysis and complex psychology. Mount is not simply the subject of a review this week, he turns reviewer for the TLS himself next week, tackling at great length and with expected perspicacity the great subject of Karl Marx. We'll come to that anon. I'm delighted to say that Ferdinand Mount 
Hunt joins me and Lucy now. Hi, Ferdy. Hi, Stig. Let's... And good morning, Lucy. Good... I hope we, we, what would be nice would be to hear her voice. You will <laughs> Hello, never recover Ferdy. from listening to Lucy Dallas sing Cherubino. <laughs> She's lost on the TLS. Anyway, there we are. Hello. Well, Ferdy, I, I, at some point, I think we need to get into more Lucy's past career because we've got her nearly duetting with Kurt Cobain and now you have her as the, the fine opera singer she undoubtedly is. You are literally too kind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start, though, uh, apart from Lucy Dallas's fine musical career, with this idea of Englishness. You say in the book, I think, Ferdy, that there's been for centuries a persisting sense of English identity. What, what are those characteristics, Well, have? I mean, one of the things is simply its persistence, that um, if you take almost any historian, many of whom are completely distinct from one another, like uh, Sir Geoffrey Elton or Patrick Wormel, the great Anglo-Saxon historian, the one thing they do agree on is that this sense of Englishness goes back a very, very long way to uh, King Alfred or the Venerable Bede, and pretty much since the, uh, the first Angles waded ashore shouting, England, England. So that's one thing. I think, I think longevity is, 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 is one of the most interesting characteristics about this sense of Englishness. But the other is, you might think in contradiction to it, is that the total lack of any sense of racial purity almost at any stage. And that um, the idea that we're mongrels uh, made up of all sorts uh, is not just a sort of modern, you know, liberal idea. It goes back to Daniel Defoe, who um, describes us as... as, um, uh, the dregs of all mankind, an ambib- amphibious, ill-born, ill-born mob, auxiliaries and slaves of every nation. So this idea of not being a, a racially single or pure nation, it, it goes back um, a, a good long way. Because we've been able to absorb influences rather than be broken by them, I mm-hmm. suppose. Exactly, exactly. Uh, is that, do you think that's changed recently? I mean, is that, an, I, that sounds very idealistic, perhaps, in the context of... of sort of Brexit Britain, which, uh, where Brexit was arguably achieved uh, because of a backlash against multiculturalism or mongrelisation. It was a sort of, the, the rhetoric was pitched on the sense that we are racially pure, we are a distinct group of people and we don't want anyone else with us. There have been backlashes uh, at intervals, I'd say almost um, inventing a, a regularity which doesn't exist, uh, um, at intervals of about a century, against immigrants. And the, uh, the most famous of them was the, um, the evil May Day of 1517, when Sir Thomas More, in, um, in Shakespeare's play, or the play by Shakespeare and, and others, uh, describes the, 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 the outcry and uh, uh, has that wonderful speech, imagine that you see the wretched strangers, the, their babies at their backs and their poor luggage, Hodding to the ports and coasts for transportation, and the, that you sit as kings in your desires. Now that kind of feeling pops up regularly, and no doubt, is, you know, there was a strong element in that in in the Brexit vote. But then it, it sort of goes away again, and you're left with the reality that we are a mixed bunch. The other thing I was struck by, um, Ferdy, in the, in the introduction to English Voices is, is that you say that not only are we a mixed bunch, but, but anyone can join. You know, if it's, if, if, it, if it's winning the first prize in the lottery, you, as you said, you can buy a lottery ticket. I mean, some of the most enthusiastic uh, Englishmen uh, were born uh, in, in all over the world. I mean, most uh, celebrated in a way. Sir Isaiah Berlin, born in Riga, watched the Bolsheviks 
revolution from his parents' apartment in St. Petersburg and another historian, Sir Lewis Namier, but there's, there's dozens of them, and Elton himself, where he describes in his introduction to his little book, The English, Elton says um, when he was 17 years old when he landed in England as Gottfried Rudolf Ehrenberg, knew nothing of the country, not even its language. Within a few months, it dawned upon me that I had arrived in the country in which I ought to have been born. So there's the romance of the uh, of the immigrant. I mean, I think it's sort of important to remember that, that uh, this this natural process of assimilation is, is a sort of the obverse of the remarkable openness of English society, which when people write, you know, histories of class and so on, they often neglect that relative to, you know, the great number of other countries uh, on the continent and elsewhere, we have always been remarkably open and uh, with occasional backslidings. Uh, and and the, other, the other word that, that uh, you use is, is phlegmatic. When you're talking about the fascism of Oswald Mosley, you say British people in the end were too phlegmatic to get carried away with that all. Do you think that we still are a phlegmatic bunch of people that when we're presented with high rhetoric, and again, the, the political context of today is relevant because part of the Brexit debate was, was characterised by a sort of pseudo-fascistic rhetoric, I, I, I presume. Do you think we are still phlegmatic as a bunch to, to not let that bother us? I contradict myself a bit here, I think, because I think phlegm is one of the characteristics which rather came along with the stiff upper lip with, with empire and the responsibilities of empire. And I think it's a passing thing. I mean, if you looked at the English of the 17th century, they were incredibly uh, aggressive, prickly, uh, quick to take offence, and um, our, our, our phlegm is, is is a sort of thing that comes and goes. Yeah. Um, but there is, I think, a uh, uh, I think it's true to the extent that high rhetoric doesn't uh, uh, last very long in English ears. Uh, we tend to turn turn a deaf ear to it. Uh, if you listen to the utterances of I don't know French politicians or American politicians, they are in general, much more high-flown, more easily high-flown uh, than those of our own uh, of our own leaders. It's fair to say, uh, Verdi, that Tessa Hadley loves your book. It's one of the most positive reviews I've read since <laughs> in my time here at the TLS. Uh, she concludes by saying, if the establishment always sounded as good as this, how dangerously seductive it would be. How much is your perspective based on, on privilege and being part of the establishment, do you think? Nobody likes to think that they're part of the establishment. Everyone likes to think that they've uh, made their own way in life. But, of course, uh, you know, in the, uh, what uh, Tessa Hadley says is is absolutely true. Um, and I think you have to make a particular effort not to be influenced by your good fortune. I can't say I've always succeeded. There's a virtue in it, though, because you refer uh, wonderfully in that you talk about Shakespeare as the son of a Glover, Keats the son of an ostler, Dickens of a feckless Clark, Hardy of a stonemason. And then you say this, which I think it seems to be rather true. They had no connection to the great world. They were free to make their own. So in some ways you are arguing that privilege is a disadvantage because the blinkers are on. And actually, if you're not born into that world, that you never acquire the blinkers. Well, I think, yeah, I think there's a bit of, bit of truth in that, too. I mean, this, uh, to go back to openness for a minute, I mean, 
what um, strikes me very much, for example, from um, Sir Keith Thomas' book, uh, Thomas's book, the, the Ends of Life, is that he's constantly finding, the further and further he goes back, this, um, this very strong impulse to open things up, uh, not just simply commerce and, uh, and and the nobility, but but intellectual life too, and 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 schools too. There's a wonderful bit of, um, in Thomas's book about um, uh, Cranmer, with a lot of other knobs being uh, drawing up the articles for the the king's school, the refounding of the king's school at Canterbury, and the other knobs wanted um, uh, the uh, places to be open only to the um, sons of gentlemen. And Cranmer says, no, no, I'm a humbly born man myself. He was exaggerating a little, but he was he was modestly born. And I think that we must open it to the children of the poor who will work harder and try better and in any way um, uh, are often a good deal cleverer than the uh, dull-brained um, uh, children of, of the nobility. And Cranmer had his way, and, that, and, and the King's School was indeed opened um, as indeed all the so-called public schools were originally founded for the children of poor families. I, I don't know how this reflects on Theresa May's new plans for grammar schools, but I'm sure it has some, it has gonna, some relevance. That, 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 that did, the, the link did occur to me uh, as you were saying it, uh, Fred. So I, I always think that's a strange policy because it's one where if you benefit from it as a person from a poorer background, it's wonderful, but you're doing it at the expense of countless others from a poorer background who are not benefiting from grammar schools. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it, I think it's... It's a totem kind of policy, which doesn't really have any thought behind it, because quite clearly what you need, whether uh, you, whatever system you have, is, is a degree of flexibility and streaming so that children can move from to and fro between one level and another. So if you want a kind of nationwide reform, I would uh, go for Ken Baker's uh, University Technical Colleges, for, for 14 to 18 year olds, which have open entry and specialize in, in, in this and that. And so that they give children of all, uh, from all backgrounds, a chance to um, sort of finish off their education with a really kind of rounded and specialized qualification. Um, I think the idea of going back to uh, the straightforward, however you dress it up, the straightforward sheep and goats thing uh, is is a waste of energy. Mm. Anyway, the question is whether we really need it, because the one thing that is clear after 20 years of educational reform, that English state schools are indeed getting better, even in the great cities like London, where they were despaired of. So it may be that it's one of those policies that... Uh, People where the energy for policy making is outrun the need for it. That's right. Well, I'm not going to entirely crassly link this by saying I wonder what Karl Marx would have made of the notion of uh, of, of grammar school reform. But we, let's talk briefly about Karl Marx, Verdi, because you are reviewing Marx for us next week. You're reviewing Gareth Stedman Jones' book, Karl Marx: Greatness and Illusion. I don't want to uh, spoil it, but one critical question you ask is and answer: How far we can absolve Marx of the horrors that were perpetrated? in his name and i think the, the the thing that i took from your piece is that it's it's too easy to absolve him of those horrors because right from the beginning and certainly in his early writings he was a willing agent of horror and he saw that actually as part of a necessary process to achieve what he wanted yes i mean that you can say that the finished version of marxism whatever that is because the arguments still go on 
may not include all the elements which led to the horror, but at some point in his life, all the, the really the key elements what led to uh, the, the, the horrors committed by Lenin and Stalin are there in, in Marx's text. He, he applauds every revolutionary terror. He looks forward eagerly to a European war, or better still, a world war, at almost every time in his life. I mean, although, you know, he was born in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, which had devastated Europe, killed tens of millions of people. And he persistently sneered at in individual human rights as bourgeois and ego egoistic, and he insisted that um, the dictatorship of the proletariat was the only way to produce true socialism. So, I mean, you know, the elements are all there. How they are mixed varies at different times in his life, but I think it's hard to say. But it's interesting that his biographers do say, almost all of them, except Gary Stedman Jones, almost all do try to absolve him. And I think that may be part of the natural human sympathy which you get by writing someone's life and therefore spending, you know, four or five years, or perhaps in the case of Marx, because his life was so huge, twice as long by, in someone's company that you begin to feel that um, you begin to want to, uh, uh, you know, let him down a little and, uh, and um, uh, palliate what seems to me the, the essential elements. Um, it's, it's also interesting, it goes back to Englishness in a way, because you say that um, towards the end of his life, when he got settled in England and in London, he actually rather liked it. And he, he met some um, some of the uh, working class, <laughs> rather impressed by them, saw that they were organising themselves into trade unions and trying to negotiate. And actually, partly because of that, he came round to the idea that you could have democratic transition. Yes, I think Marx's London years are are fascinating and, and very touching, really, because the, the, he had grinding poverty, he and Jenny and the children, and they were being chucked out of country after country. And London, he was pretty poor here uh, for, for quite a time. His belongings when, uh, were thrown out onto the street in Chelsea when, when he was evicted by the bailiffs but gradually began to get a little luckier. Uh, he had a few legacies and Engels was uh, the Engels's cotton mills up in Manchester were doing very well, and Engels was incredibly generous to him. Um, so he was a little better off, and he began to look around him a bit, and he, he liked all sorts of things about English life, pub crawls up the Tottenham Court Road, and walks on Hampstead Heath on Sundays, and going down to Ramsgate, um, watch the Punch and Judy shows, all this kind of stuff where it should be pointed out Everybody was mingling. I mean, you know, there the sort of wasn't a kind of class separation or indeed, uh, let alone class struggle. And I think, although he'd never have admitted it, that this, those years, which were the last uh, 20 years of his life, I mean, he hadn't expected to uh, spend, uh, no, the last 30 years of his life, uh, to expected to spend all the rest of his life in London. Uh, I think they did begin to soften him, and he begin, and he began to think, well, there is another way. The, the trade unions and the universal suffrage, these can bring about effective control by the proletariat of, 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 of the nation's politics. So, but that, of course, completely mucks up the, um, uh, the rigid scheme by which you have to go through the bourgeois dominance and then you have to have the violent revolution. And then there was a third thing. He suddenly got very interested in Russia, and the peasants and he uh, and the peasant village communities and he thought oh well that's 
these are wonderful there's, they're, they're because they have collective ownership. Um, perhaps Russia, at least, could move direct from this peasant ownership to uh, uh, the socialist revolution without having to go through the intermediate stage. And Engels came down on him like a ton of bricks and said, no, no, you can't uh, skip the stage. But, but he was attracted by that, all of which makes him sound much more sympathetic, but at the same time leaves his um, doctrine in a, in a bit of a mess, because instead of there being one set way to socialism, there now seem to be three. Yeah. Uh, well, we should probably leave it there, Ferdi, for, as we get to the, the palliative quality of Englishness takes us back to where we started at the beginning. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And thank you for the review of the Stedman Jones book. It's a wonderful thing, you on Karl Marx. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be back with the LTLS, even if only at the end of the line. Well, it's lovely. <laughs> thank you, Ferdy. Bye-bye. Very good. I find notions of Englishness really interesting because I think they're so easily poisoned. And I think Ferdy is a bit idealistic in some ways as he's talking about the sort of tolerance and... Yes, but it's interesting that he said it that goes in waves. Yeah. And in fact, I wonder, I mean, I hope that we're already seeing that, that there was a kind of little... There has been recently a wave of a sort of backlash against that. And, we, you know, I wonder if that's now receding. The other thing that he said that he thought Englishness was based on... Well, there's a couple of things. Common, common law the kind of um, centuries of accretion of law since the Magna Carta, since Magna Carta, sorry, David Horsbill will kill me for saying the Magna Carta. <laughs> um, but also the English language, because he says that, that, that from much earlier than other countries who were conducting all their business in Latin and not really using the vernacular, it was the peasants using the vernacular, we were doing everything in English. And so an English became kind of capacious enough. Yeah. It's that notion of being pragmatic and, and, and tolerant in the sense of absorbing stuff all around you all the time. Yeah, yeah. And that even the language even can the do language, that. Especially the language. So, so the very way you communicate includes, yeah. uh, includes Anglo-Saxon and French and Latin and now, you know, Yiddish and Hindi and, you know, all sorts of things. Lovely stuff. Right, we must move on. From Karl Marx to another decisive historical figure, Adolf Hitler. Our history special of the TLS this week begins with a review by Anson Rabenbach of Mein Kampf, finally published in Germany in a critical edition. The book is called by its own editors A Swamp of Lies, Distortions, Innuendos, Half-Truths and Real Facts. So what purpose does modern publication serve and how much can we trace a linear course from the rantings of a not especially bright demagogue to the horrors of the concentration camps? The rest of the edition takes in the legal context of those concentration camps. Lawrence Douglas has reviewed two books featuring the lawyers asked to respond to the crimes of the Nazi state, one of whom coined the term genocide to do so. A German emperor of the 12th century, Frederick Barbarossa, will be featured, who gave his name to Hitler's failed invasion of Russia. A conspiracy to murder James I that was believed by many to represent the truth about his death, and the birth and expansion of realpolitik as an idea or ideal for modern times. Connecting some of these things together for us is David Horsepool, history editor of the TLS. David, let's start with Mein Kampf, the publication of which has been prescribed in Germany with little practical effect, one imagines, for the last 70 years. It's now been made available in one form, an expensive critical edition that runs to more than 2,000 pages and costs 60 euros. All other editions are banned under a law prescribing popular incitement which seems to me to be extraordinary but we'll get to that firstly what do you think how important is the final approved publication of Mein Kampf again in Germany 
I think, well, I think it is a big deal in Germany. It's obviously been a quite a popular hit. Uh, as our reviewer says, it's become a desirable commodity. It sold out within weeks. They had to reprint it. Uh, Why people want to have it. Well, I, so I don't think that's because everybody wants to read Mein Kampf and has been waiting for a chance because they've, they've all had the chance to do that anytime they like because there have been various versions vail- available. Of course, they have uh, published many years ago and it's on the internet and all the rest of it, I'm sure. So I think what people possibly have been yearning for in some strange way is something to explain Mein Kampf to them, some way in which they can pick up this very off-putting part of their history and look at it honestly and without shame in a way. Um, not, not to be ashamed to be seen reading it because it means that you must believe what's in it. Instead, to want to know what it's all about, as it were. Do we think, I mean, I was interested in this because I, I, I'm surprised in a way and I don't think I entirely approve that should a state say you can't publish other editions of a book like this and you could only publish it with this sort of critical scaffolding of of material it's effectively saying this is too dangerous a book to just chuck out for the for the mass public to read you have to surround it with something that somehow neutralizes the the words of hitler do we buy that as a necessary thing and is it a problem when the state says here's the only way you can receive this information yeah i think i think that could be a problem i think in a way this is a kind of fiction that the the state i think it's the state of bavaria have uh constructed because they know perfectly well as i say it is available people can read it and for example neo-nazis i'm sure have have read it for many years what they want to do is to be able to take back some control over it i think and that's the only way in which they can and i think much better for them to have done it like this than either to have attempted to ban it entirely which is what some people wanted to happen that they should have nothing to do with it. They should say it is not allowed in and there Germany. Were pro- there were protests, weren't there, when this book of, was announced? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we, we had a, a letter which we we may get another letter now that we're publishing the review uh, suggesting that w- that it shouldn't be published. Uh, I think that would have not been a very practical solution on their part. Uh, therefore, in this way, they, they can take back some control over it. And I think that's what they want to do. I wonder as well whether there's a problem of what do you do? Uh, would it be okay if somebody was publishing an edition and making lots of money out of it? I, I imagine they're not very yes, happy with uh, that idea. Where, where, where is the money going to? The state of Bavaria? There's a, there's a debate in America where it's, I mean, it's never really been out of print in America. I'm not sure what the situation is here, but um, I think Harcourt published it in America. And there has been a debate there as to what... Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Happens to the profits from it, uh, which have always been donated to charity. And then it was pointed out, I think, not long ago that no Jewish charities were benefiting and they did something about that. They they you changed would have thought that. that would be the first charity that you would give it to. You, you might have done, but they made that omission, apparently. Obviously, yes, there is something strange about that, and, and, and far from making money out of it, I mean, there is something a bit extraordinary about the fact that the, as our review, Anson Rabibach, says, the uh, Bavarians have put up uh, half a million euros for this edition, although they've said that it's actually the, uh, institute, the Historical Institute in Munich that are in charge of it, they've backed it to, to the tune of half a million euros. So that's, that's a pretty substantial amount of money to put up for any kind of academic um, project. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of historians who would love that. Sure, that's right. That, uh, the review concluded that this is interesting, um, that it'd be too simple to construct a direct road to Auschwitz from Hitler's hateful sermons, but it'd be even more problematic to simply ignore such a connection. Is it too simple, really, to give a man who, uh, when he was writing this in the 20s was articulating a hatred for Jewish people. Is it, is it too, why is it too simple to... It's to, to, too simple, I suppose, because there are plenty of uh, nutcases over the years who've had fantasies of various types, including horrendous anti-Semitic fantasies, which didn't come to anything. The fact that Hitler's came to such a terrible conclusion can't just be down to one man. Yeah. I suppose that's what Rabbi Bach calls a scholarly quagmire, that um, this whole relation between how much is Hitler alone responsible for the crimes of the Third Reich, how much are the German people, how much are the Nazi party around Hitler, and one suspects that the answer is all of the above. So, of course, Hitler's fantasies have a lot to do with it. And that's why I think it would be crazy to ignore Mein Kampf or to say it's only for for neo-Nazis to read, as it were, is because it's important for historians to understand those connections. And it's complicated, I suppose, because Hitler himself would have felt it was, was down to him. I mean, he, yes. he, he, he's a sort of solipsist sort of extraordinaire, isn't he? Absolutely. So he thinks it's his prophecy coming true, and we as sober historians and anti-Nazis want not to believe that. And to some extent, we can be secure in, in, in the knowledge that it isn't the case, but in another way, it has something to it. Can I ask, do you, how much do you think people actually read it at the time? It's very difficult to say. I mean, we've got a review uh, reprinted this week uh, as well at the back of the paper in our archive uh, section by someone who I discovered was a, a diplomat at the time in 1933 of a reprint of Mein Kampf. So it's just after Hitler's come to power. Mm. He's obviously read it, Sir Alec Randall, but you, you almost wouldn't know it from the review because it, it, it takes into account there's a bit of anti-Semitism, but that's sort of to be expected from this type of person, as it were. But it doesn't seem to notice that it's this kind of foam-flecked uh, screed. 
so it, it's difficult to know. It's, it's a pretty big book. It's two volumes. It was printed in two volumes originally. It seems unlikely that it would have been read and it was never excerpted. It was never, uh, you know, reduced to some juicy quotes, as it were. Mm. So, but it was given to uh, married couples. Yes, which I think is, uh, I find yes. fascinating. Out of this, the, the marriage edition given at c- civil ceremonies to all newlywed couples at state expense, which also makes you think it is probably the sort of book that isn't read then because you can just imagine the sort of book that people are given at those occasions are just the sorts of books that they that, don't actually um, read mm. there's a there's a cartoon a disney cartoon of donald duck uh, a propaganda cartoon that they um, they won an academy award for in 1943 where donald duck bizarrely is a brainwashed nazi but he re- what i found striking about that is if you look at it, it's on youtube you can you can see it he reads Mein Kampf at one point. So it was clearly in 1943 a shorthand for saying become a brainwashed, to become an brainwashed by it's Hitler. Donald's nightmare is part well, of that, th- yes. This is how it happens. You read Mein Kampf. Well, he, he, yes. he does sort of gets yeah. up in the morning, doesn't he? And at some point he sort of reads Mein Kampf and then he, 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 that's part of the nightmare of being a Nazi was seen to be reading Mein Kampf. Mm. Yes, and, and I think it's still, you know, it's, it's probably... Uh, but even people who wouldn't know what Mein Kampf means, literally, you know, my struggle, they would have heard of that title. So it has a kind of power, uh, a, a dark kind of symbolism, uh, which I think it's all to the good if this kind of edition takes away from that. I suppose one of the things this review is about and our discussions about is how you sort of put a construction around the the unsayable, the the, the the shocking things that then happen. How do you find a way of contextualising? And the second review that we've paired with it focuses on the legal responses to the Holocaust that Lawrence Douglas has reviewed two books, A Passing Fury by A.T. Williams and East West Street by Philippe Sands. And they focus on the lawyer's involved in dealing with the aftermath of concentration camps in which you know 1945 the wars won what does the victorious power do in response to the sites that that were seen i mean presumably i mean it was very my granddad was at belson when it was liberated and and, uh, the awareness i imagine was instant of what had happened how much was known during sort of the early 40s i imagine in that moment when allied armies were sweeping through germany and poland they'd have seen everyone would have seen what had happened and there was a need for some sort of response yes and uh, of course you know there was a different response depending on the armies who were doing the liberating in belsen which one of these books the the williams books addresses in Belgium, I didn't know about this, the trials started there. So it doesn't start with the Nuremberg, the famous Nuremberg trials that we all know about or, you know, have heard of. It starts actually with the trial of the people who ran Belsen, who were also connected to the death camps at Auschwitz as well, the, the people who were on trial. So the impulse to have a legal response was pretty immediate. You know, famously at, uh, I think it was at Belsen again, the, they, they took people from the surrounding villages and showed them what had been done in their name and made them actually clear up the, the bodies of the dead and bury the dead and so on. They confronted them, but they, they didn't limit themselves to that. They wanted to have a legal process to work out a, a legal way of dealing with this. I suppose the idea behind that was not only that these seemed to be unprecedented crimes, but also that they should be unrepeatable or that there should be some method of making sure that people knew that they couldn't be repeated just because you were at war. It's extraordinary. If you read the Nuremberg trials, and there's transcripts all over the place, there's a, there's a website I've seen, 
about it you almost feel as you're reading it that there's a it's a very well acted facade though because they're talking to whoever they're talking to Eichmann or whoever yeah. it's very clear they all know this has happened the evidence is is overwhelming the the anecdotal evidence but they're having to go through it's not quite the motions they're deliberately going through the formality of a legal process these people are allowed a defense they're defending themselves even though really the outcome of that must have been been known that this was yes, there's only going to be one result here I, and i think some some of the people on trial wondered at what was what was happening to them they ex- they probably expected to be put up against a wall and shot when they lost kind of thing if they hadn't managed to already take their own lives as some of them did of course and continued to during the trials and being confronted with these unheard of charges charge of genocide the charge of crimes against humanity was the point of it i think was was doing that to say this is beyond murder this is beyond what what is done in in however awful wars get there has to be some kind of legal limit i wonder if it, i mean and it's surely important in all sorts of ways symbolically and legally to um, follow due process. Yeah, to and say, it, you did this, but actually we're going to do it under the yeah, rule of law. Yeah, it's civilization's answer to, to, to the most uncivilised acts it's ever it, borne witness it's to. It's kind of, isn't that what happened a bit at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, even though there there was no sort of judgment, as it were, but there was, it was a formal Yeah, these setting. formal approaches, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they have a, a direct relation as well to the, the international courts uh, you know, at The Hague, in fact, both authors reviewed are our lawyers themselves who are involved in 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 such cases, um, and I think they both take very much the the kind of modern lessons of the importance of Nuremberg and actually what came before Nuremberg for today. Let's stay in Germany because there are a couple of other pieces. We'll try and get to both, but we'll certainly probably get to one because it's very rarely discussed. I suspect uh, we've got a review by Mark Witter about a new biography of Frederick Barbarossa, who's the 12th century German emperor. As we all knew before reading that review, Lucy, didn't we? I knew all about him before. By I John him, yeah. B. Fried, which is a wonderful uh, uh, name. Uh, does Barbarossa matter? I mean, it, it, there's an interesting connection to Hitler in that Barbarossa, our Prussian Barbarossa, was his Hitler's attempt to to take Russia, wasn't it? That, yes. That was, that and, was and, the name of it. And, and no coincidence that it... I mean, it, you know, Operation Sea Lion was the attempt to uh, to take Britain. I don't know that there was much to that naming, but the naming of Barbarossa was obviously meant to be very symbolic. It was to do with Germany awaking. And, and that myth is to do with... Well, Barbarossa, 12th century uh, Holy Roman Emperor and German king. One of the things the review addresses very nicely, uh, partly by looking at some old exam questions from the 19th century onwards, is how much does Barbarossa matter as a 12th century figure? And probably the answer, which this massive great biography gives, is he's a very interesting figure, but possibly not as powerful as he was made out to be. Frederick Barbarossa is the real hero of the medieval empire, Discuss. That's one of one of those. In nineteen oh four was one of the questions. I think I was made to answer really? questions like this. In nineteen oh four. No, I uh, You're bearing in about up well. nineteen forty four when I <laughs> did my version of this. I think I was probably the last generation that was asked to answer questions about Frederick Barbarossa. And all I could remember was that he died uh, crossing a river, that he died going for a swim That's right. on the third crusade. 
and, um, and why is this old, why is this old fashioned? Because it's actually a very interesting review because he talks about effectively that this is an old fashioned type of history. This biography of Frederick Bar- uh, Barbarossa comes out at a time where arguably the demand for it has died. Why has history has history changed? History stu- history as a study. Why has it changed? Why is it not as important to read about Frederick Barbarossa as it would be to read about I don't know Henry the Third or something like that? I'm not sure whether he's right about that. It's difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, it would be nice to think that we it, we in Britain still took an interest or, or in America, you know, English English speaking readers still took an interest in the European Middle Ages, but I suspect the answer is that we don't. I think Why the is reason... That? Is, there not, is there an intrinsic good? It's an interesting point. This. Is there an intrinsic good in just learning about a period for its own sake, do you think? Oh, I would argue absolutely yes. I think in the case of Barbarossa, he is a fascinating, flawed figure who became this figure of myth. He became this figure of... He uh, is said to be sleeping under a mountain in Germany, despite the fact that he actually died in the Middle East. He's buried somewhere in Lebanon. But the, the myth began that he's sleeping under a mountain in Germany and he would awake to to awaken German nationalism. And so the Third Reich of, of Hitler, was, was he was... The first one was that. Is that was it was going yes. back to that? Yeah. I, I, I just, it felt it's, this is the pieces how old fashioned. I did this didn't feel like writing about someone like Frederick Barbarossa was old. Didn't feel like old fashioned history to me. That's just history, isn't it? Yes, I suppose so. I suppose the, the way in which is old fashioned is that it seems to be uh, our reviewer has gone back through these some of these exam questions, and they do. He say he says they they stop um, around about 1980, but. Um, the fact that they stop, I think people get more interested in uh, the movements of peoples, of uh, uh, social questions, this sort of thing, and maybe kings and queens and emperors seems a bit yeah. old-fashioned. But, of course, in Britain, we're obsessed with kings and queens and emperors, so we can't get enough of it. The person that he reminded me of immediately was King Arthur, because he's, he's sleeping under, under sleeping a mountain, mountain. Rise absolutely. Again, um, and I think there are various uh, myths of kings sleeping under a mountain, my favourite of which I think is probably going to get this wrong i believe there's a welsh prince or king sleeping under a mountain called bran blessed oh, i yes, kid there you is. not I, I read about him bran yes. the blessed there bran blessed are. nothing to do with brian not nothing brian to blessed. do with brian but obviously he would have to play him. he would well, play him very well <laughs> let's leave it on that on that scholarly note david horsepool uh, there are other pieces that we've not had time to get to include jennifer pitts on john bue's really interesting book on real politique and uh, there's a very interesting review on the murder of King James I. He probably wasn't murdered, was he, just to give a quick spoiler. But there was a, there was a school of thought at a certain point that he was. And that's what's interesting. That's what's interesting about it. David, thank you very much indeed. We're going to move on now. In the summer of 2015, Nick Cave's 15-year-old son, Arthur, fell from a cliff near their home in Brighton, having taken LSD. He died. This forms the backdrop, implied subject and continual reference of two works of art connected with him, a documentary entitled One More Time with Feeling and a record called Skeleton Tree. The first track of the album, Jesus Alone, has this appallingly sad line, you fell from the sky, crash-landed in a field near the River Ada. You fell from the sky, crash-landed in a field near the River Eder. Mika Ross-Southall has reviewed both documentary and album and joins Lucy and me now. Uh, Mika, the obvious thing is it's a lovely review you've written. The presence of Arthur clearly looms large in in both projects, yeah. the, the record and, and the documentary. How has that been handled, do you think? The film itself is gentle and beautifully shot, but it's really hard to watch it's so sad and tragic and 
it feels almost like you're listening in or watching into things that you really shouldn't be. It's so intimate and surprisingly it's very human. Um, actually at the beginning of the film, Warren Ellis, who's a longtime collaborator of Nick Cave and he's also part of the Bad Seeds, the band, he says that there's a step you can't take. But it feels like this film does take that step. It feels like it goes perhaps a little too far into the domestic life of Nick Cave. And why, why has he done that then? Because I, I, I kind of find that extraordinary as a p- private guy. It is, yeah, it's very... And you talk about why he's done it, don't you, In the it, or, or why it seems as though he's done it, how yeah. he talks about it. Ostensibly, he decided to do this film as a way of promoting his new album, Skeleton Tree. Actually, it's turned into something a lot more complex than that. It's, it is a series of performances of the different songs on the album, but interspersed with that is interviews with Nick Cave, with his wife, with... Uh, there's a little minor role for the twin brother of Arthur, Earl, who's 16. There's also interviews with Warren Ellis um, and a few of the other band members. And it feels like he doesn't even know himself why he's doing it. He questions throughout, why am I sitting in front of a camera? He even says that and he gets a response actually from Andrew Dominic, the director who's the interviewer. He actually agrees. He's kind of like, yeah, I don't know why you're even in front of this camera saying these things. And you said that also that it, that one or one of the stated reasons for doing it was so that he doesn't precisely so that he doesn't have to do press and publicity yeah, for this album because absolutely. obviously he doesn't want to have to deal with that. But so in a way that's he doesn't want to sort of expose himself and talk about things. And yet he's doing that in the film. But I suppose he's doing it as in his own terms even if as you say he says he doesn't understand them himself there's a lot of control in this film as much as it feels like it's raw emotion that you're seeing every shot is perfect it has its own kind of stage and if you think one one really difficult moment actually is when Susie Nick's wife is showing the camera a painting that their son Arthur did when he was five years old and she sort of performs to the camera she holds it up to the camera and and you could imagine the kind of backstory behind that of someone saying why don't you show the painting to the camera and explain what it is and she explains it but through the process of explaining it you see her break down Mm. and you see her not knowing actually what to say next and Nick steps in takes the painting from her and sort of guides her to sit down and then you don't actually see it but you see their arms kind of come together under the table and the the camera pauses on it and it's it's really hard to watch you, mm. you so is it a work of art this i mean there's just a question of this the, is this a work of art the the documentary because i mean the album clearly is it's a, it's a, it's songs that he wrote before generally speaking before his mm. son died and we'll come to the album shortly but is the documentary, in your view, a piece of art, a piece of performance art? I think so. I think it does act as an extended music video in a way. And actually they've extracted from the film itself to make the individual music videos for each of the tracks um, so far, the ones that they've released. But the film itself is interspersed with 
beautiful and arresting stills of lots of kind of empty scenes such as going around their home the empty bedroom of Arthur which is still furnished scenes of Brighton sort of the cliff where he fell and just kind of intimate things around their house as well as the interviews I wonder if as well um, when we were talking about it earlier we were saying when we were talking about why you know probably all sorts of reasons why he did it but we were also saying that that's that's his job that's what he does he's a musician and he's made these films before hasn't he? he's made a a film mm, his was previous 20, documentary yeah, yeah, 20,000 Days on Earth which that, was, that was absolutely different yes. it was yep. so slick so self-important the way he presented himself was as an absolute persona and it was and absolutely full of confidence wasn't it kind yeah, of swagger was, and style was, but also it was self-mocking he yeah, knew yeah. he knew what he was doing he knew he was setting himself up to be almost disliked but the more he does that the more we like him mm. yeah. but in this one he comes across as so vulnerable and altered he doesn't seem to have that ego he just seems absolutely different tell us about the album because uh, w- what struck you listening to it were there any particular songs or or themes that, that come out of the album to you hanging over the entire album is this sense of loss and isolation and disillusionment and a feeling of being let down as well i think in his previous work he he sort of tempted with these morbid things like the devil yes, and he's hell written and about death hasn't he and yeah. kind of these gothic kind of themes hasn't he yeah and so there's nothing there's nothing different in terms of subject matter in this new album but the overriding state of it is definitely influenced by what's happened for example distant sky there's a riff in it which is they told us our dreams would outlive us they told us our gods would outlive us but they lied as though he's feeling let down and he actually in the film ad-libs and says they told us our children would outlive us which isn't in the song but he kind of goes off course with that and directly references his son they told us I know the music was written, or rather the songs were written beforehand, but the sound of the album, it's very... You said the film is difficult to watch, and it's also... It's quite difficult to listen to this, isn't it? It's not that it's not beautiful, it's really beautiful, but it's quite unsettling. It's very uncomfortable. It's kind of... It doesn't make you feel relaxed or... Is that because um, he's not, changed it? Not that it, it has to make you feel no, relaxed. No, is that because he's, he's changed it post-writing, post the death of his, his, his son? Or is because as a, as a listener, you know different information, so you're listening to it in a different way? I think it's a combination of both, yeah. actually. I think that you read into the lyrics, because the lyrics themselves aren't directly about his son. I think you read into them what's happened... But on the other hand, that he even says in the film, actually, that the way the album has come out 
is probably in a slightly unpolished way and that normally they would fix it up but they just didn't want to. They just wanted it to come out as it was. Because there's a broader point here, which I think Martin Ames is talking about. When someone is in grief, they don't burst into poetry, they burst into tears. And then when you have a poem that restructures that grief, in some ways it falsifies it. Because at the moment you put order, you put rhyming couplets in, you put rhythm in, you put in the sense of a music, you put in a band and, and the order of a song. To a certain extent, you are taking what was a raw mm. emotion and you're polishing mm. it to, to, to some degree. It's quite interesting, actually, in the film that he talks a lot about his creative process and he says that he was stunted. He couldn't, he couldn't do anything. On the other hand, his wife, Susie, says she launched herself into work. She, she actually is a fashion designer and she completely immersed herself in that. And it took a while for Nick Cave to actually get back into the studio. And he talks about looking at his scraps of lyrics again that he had been working on. And he says it was hard to even look at what he had been doing in the past because of what's happened. It's a fascinating, it's a lovely review. I think you've been you've been very sensitive and thoughtful about, about this and it's they're extraordinary pieces. We're, in a moment we'll play out to another part of it. What will we hear in the, the, last, the last clip we've got? What we're going to listen to? This is, I think, the saddest song actually on the album and it's called I Need You. And you hear his voice is, it almost sounds strained. It sounds strained and pained. There's an intense amount of emotion in it. And he talks about how nothing really matters when the one you love is gone. Tragic. Mika, thank you very much indeed. That's almost all we have time for this week. Thanks to Lucy and to Ferdinand Mount, David Horsepool and Mika Ross-Southall. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today, plus Christopher Witten on Variety, Daniel Cohen on Taste and Kieran Setia on Our Need for Art. Christopher Ricks on his battle with Boston University over the Editorial Institute. Claire Jackson on the Great Fire of London. Robert Douglas Fairhurst being mean about Ben-Hur. Dan Gunn on Samuel Beckett. Jenny Hendricks on Teju Cole. James O'Brien on David Cameron's Fall from Grace. Christine Toomey on Scotland's disastrous dalliance with Darian. And Barbara King on Sheep. You can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at The TLS. We'll leave you, therefore, as Mika was saying, with a brief moment from Nick Cave's new album, Skeleton Tree. Until next time, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.